I'm Lisa Bazzallo, and I am a Senior Associate in the Planning Team at Herbert Smith Rehills. Today, I am hosting the fifth and final episode in our Back to Basics Development Concept Regime podcast series. Today's episode will cover DCO decisions, challenges to decisions, and post-grant changes. And I am joined by my colleague, Ali Paul, who will be providing some helpful insight on these topics. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here with you today. Ali joined the planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills just over two years ago, not long after I joined the team. Ali is currently advising EDF on its DCO application for Sizewell C, which is a proposed nuclear power station. He has also recently been closely involved in a non-material change application that EDF made in relation to Hinkley Point CDCO. So, Ali, shall we start with the decision stage of the DCO process? Thanks, Lisa. As you mentioned in the previous episode, the ultimate decision on whether or not to grant development consent falls to the relevant Secretary of State. So, for a proposed power station, it would be the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, or BAES, and for a proposed road scheme, it would be the Secretary of State for Transport. Presumably the Secretary of State has to issue the decision within a certain period, is that correct? Yes, the decision stage is also subject to statutory timescales. First, the examining authority is required to issue its recommendation to the Secretary of State within three months of the end of the examination. And then the Secretary of State is under a duty to issue his or her decision within three months of receipt of the recommendation report. These periods can be extended, and recent notable examples of this happening include Wilfer Nuclear Power Station and the recently granted A303 DCO. Generally speaking, though, applicants should receive their decision within six months of the close of the examination. And it is this greater certainty around timescales that is one of the key benefits of the DCO regime. And I suppose greater certainty around outcome too. Absolutely. Since the Planning Act came into force 11 years ago, of those applications that made it to the decision stage, around 95% have been successful. This is a very high success rate compared to normal planning applications. So whilst the DCO process is time and resource intensive, the statistics show that applicants have a far greater chance of obtaining consent. I suppose it's hard to draw a fair comparison between the DCO regime and the Town and Country Planning Act regime, as there is such a range of developments that are considered under the latter. But what do you think the main reasons are for the high success rate under the Planning Act? I agree. It is difficult to draw a fair comparison, but I would say the main reasons for the high success rate and what set the two regimes apart are first, for the majority of projects that go through the DCO process, there is a national policy statement or NPS that applies to that type of project which the Secretary of State must have regard to when making his or her decision. This brings multiple benefits and is a fundamental part of the DCO process. The MPS will set out the extent to which the type of project is needed and the examining authority may disregard any representation submitted that concerns the merits of the MPS, meaning that there is no requirement to consider the need case as part of the assessment of the application. Some MPSs, such as the nuclear MPS, go even further and identify that particular locations are suitable for that particular type of development. The MPS will also clearly identify what impacts the applicant must assess and present in the application. This means that promoters have a far better idea of how to structure their proposals, resulting in better quality applications. And the second point, as discussed earlier in the series, the DCO process is deliberately front-loaded, meaning that issues can be identified and addressed well before the decision-making stages. This is one of the defining characteristics of the DCO regime and is perhaps the single most important reason why the decisions that are made tend to be more robust. On that point, perhaps you could expand a little bit on challenges to DCO decisions. Do many DCOs get judicially reviewed, for example? 
Yes, some do get challenged, and there are several ongoing challenges at the moment, but I don't think that's surprising. Nationally significant infrastructure projects inevitably attract controversy due to their nature and scale. However, of the challenges that have been brought against approved DCOs, all have been unsuccessful so far. There have also been two challenges against refused DCOs, one of which was successful and the other unsuccessful. So, breaking it down rather crudely, roughly 10% of DCOs have been challenged and the developer has been successful in all but one. That's pretty reassuring from the perspective of a promoter then. Yes, definitely. Why do you think third parties have not had more success? As with any judicial review, making a successful case is difficult. The usual grounds of judicial review apply to DCO challenges. So, for example, a claimant would need to argue that the Secretary of State had acted illegally or irrationally in arriving at the decision, or that there had been some procedural unfairness in the process. The courts cannot and will not re-engage in the merits of the case, so most cases turn on correct interpretation of policy, the environmental assessment or effects of the project, or procedural unfairness of the examination. The bar is set high for arguing these grounds though, and it's perhaps more difficult in the DCO context because of the strong statutory and national policy framework that sits around the whole process. Also, a claimant has just six weeks from the date of the decision in which to make a claim. Whilst this is no different from a normal planning judicial review, this is a relatively short window. So, assuming you've been granted your DCO and it's free from challenge, how does a promoter go about making a change to its DCO? Whilst the great benefit of the DCO regime is its certainty, the downside is the lack of flexibility and difficulty in making changes following the grant of consent, compared to a Town and Country Planning Act permission, which is fairly easy to amend, particularly if the amendments are non-material. There are three ways to change a DCO. These are, first, using a correction order, which is reserved for correcting minor errors and must be applied for within six weeks of grant of the DCO. Secondly, using a non-material change, which is for fairly minor changes that do not create new or additional environmental effects, do not impact on sites protected under the habitats regulations, and do not involve new interests in land that are subject to compulsory acquisition. And thirdly, using a material change, which is for more significant changes which do create new or additional environmental effects, or impact sites protected under the habitats regulations, or involve new interests subject to compulsory acquisition. Are these mechanisms used very often? Correction orders are, yes. Around half of all DCOs have been subject to correction orders, and a number of DCOs have also been amended by way of non-material change. No material change applications have been submitted yet, though PINS has created a project page for a proposed material change application for the Hinkley Point C DCO. So, they seem a pretty important part of the DCO process then? They certainly are. Infrastructure projects take years to build, and through this time, projects continue to evolve. Change processes available to promoters are vital, though they can take time, in some cases, months or years. And presumably there's a statutory process that governs the process by which changes to DCOs are approved? Yes. There are separate regulations made under the Planning Act that deal with non-material and material changes to DCOs, and also useful guidance which was published in 2015 by the then Department for Communities and Local Government. There are publicity and consultation requirements for non-material and material changes, though the requirements are less burdensome for non-material changes. The process for correction orders is more straightforward. The Secretary of State just has to notify the relevant local authorities of the correction request. There is no wider consultation or publicity. Thanks, Ellie. That's been really useful. Well, everyone, that concludes our Back to Basics Development Consent Regime podcast series. Please note that whilst this podcast is intended to provide a general overview of the development consent regime, the law can change quickly and a general overview 
can't take account of the many different factors that will affect each individual case. So please seek independent legal or professional advice. If you would like more information on anything mentioned in today's podcast, or any of the other podcast episodes in this series, please contact a member of the Herbert Smith Freehills planning team using the contact details on the podcast homepage.